Authenticity is life for me. Being in a space of being inauthentic is death. Mm. And I see that now even more so as a doctor. I see how when we are not fully ourselves as either people who are providing healthcare to others, if we cannot fully be ourselves in the work that we do, we can't fight for the rights to build systems that are taking care of people in the way that they should be. Mi gente, what's good? Dímelo, dímelo. Welcome to another episode of the Gintuera's podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know. It's your boy Pavel bringing you another very special episode with another very special guest. As a quick reminder on this show, our mission is to redefine professionalism. Our research has proven time and time again that most of y'all are faking that at work. So we aim to show you representation of people being their most authentic selves and thriving professionally. That said, every week we have a different guest join us for a very candid conversation around the conflict that they've experienced between professionalism and authenticity. And before getting into the full conversation, let me give you a quick bio on Angel so you have a little bit more context going into the conversation. So Angel Rosario is a native New Yorker from Harlem slash Washington Heights who explores his intersectionality identities as a gay, Afro-Dominican cisgender doctor who's completing his training as a general surgeon. That's right, y'all, a Dominican surgeon. Coming from a low-income background, Angel often explores race, health, power, privilege, and socioeconomic disparities that result through this lens. He articulates them through his memoir writing, poetry, health disparity research, and mentorship. Angel believes that a diverse, unapologetically authentic, and culturally humble healthcare workforce working alongside community members is crucial and instrumental to ending race-based medicine. Oof. Now that you know a little bit more about this week's guest, Angel Rosario, let's get into this dope conversation we had with him. All right, so let's let's just start off where we always do with the word authenticity. Yeah. You know what's funny? I actually dig it. Authenticity is the word of the year for 2023. Really? Yeah, I saw it That's on LinkedIn wild. the other day. That's crazy. Yeah, but it's it's a buzzword. Everyone's saying it. What does it mean to you when you hear the word? Yeah, so to me, it is it is like a feeling to okay. me. It's like something deep in my core that resonates as truth or not truth. So it feels somewhat intangible and, and private. Private. And yeah, okay. it, I don't think it necessarily is something that is has to be externalized. Like I think about okay. RuPaul's Drag Race <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> okay. they're like, you know, you're born naked and the rest is drag. And I'm like, I remember hearing that like 10 years ago and being like, you know, that resonates. Everything that is outside that we use as garb, you know, is, is, is just one manifestation. But who we are as individuals, our authenticity, is so much more deeper than that. It, it's it's so in that way it's private. It's also to me very ancestral, generational. And so, you know, even if I am a blank slate and I don't interact with anyone in the world, I still have a history just by my physical presence here. Yeah. That comes from my ancestors. So just existing in that way 
is also a form of authenticity, even if you don't say or do anything. Right, right. So if you had to pick a few words to describe when you are your most authentic self, like how do you think you would describe it? Or how do you think people would describe you? Yeah, I, I think um, I, I think a lot of people would say very different different okay. things about me. <laughs> I mean, DK, I'm a doctor, and I have problems. You know what I'm saying? So it's like a whole range. It's a whole range. So I think I think people would very different people would describe me in different ways depending on the setting that I'm in. Okay, that kind of adds to this idea that yeah. there's no truth to. To it, there there is a kind of a existential or spiritual truth to it, okay. but there's not a, an observable truth necessarily sure. to authenticity. It's just how the relationship of how I externalize or not, whether through my speech or through what I'm wearing, inside of me feels correct or not. Yeah, I get that, and it's something you mentioned too around like ancestral, this history of like family. I think family has such an impact on who we are. What do you think were some of the expectations for you growing up on how to show up in the world from yeah. family? I mean... It, I'm sure they weren't, like... I'm sure they're, they're, they're not happy looking at this video. Yeah, actually, they're not going to see this. With Rolos coming outside, like, you walked outside like that? <laughs> they're not going to see this video. Not because, I mean, just... Mommy's going to be like, ¿Qué tú haces? ¿Qué tú haces con eso puerto? So, like, she's going to be like, ¡Ay, eso santísimo! <laughs> You know, she's going to be like, what? My dad's not with us anymore. Mm. He would have been like, <laughs> you know? So I think it's interesting because that has also been a development. Mm. When I was a little boy, it, I was very closed off. I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, the identities that now I have and that I claim, mm. particularly around being gay mm. and, you know, and now something that I absorb for myself is being black, which I was not raised in that environment. You know, uh, it's not uncommon, you know, in Dominican culture to, yeah. to just deny that aspect yeah. in that way. It's a very nationalistic mindset. Like, yeah. so Dominicano, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so as I've gotten older, I think, and claiming these identities, mm -hmm. uh, that really, as a young person, as a child, I felt shame for, at least mm -hmm. the ones that I understood. So as uh, affirmation grew, I think being able to assert myself in this way yeah. has changed drastically as an adult. But as a child, I mean, yo era calladito. I was getting bullied a lot in school. Um, for why, being, why were you getting bullied? Kids being kids, yeah. saying you know homoph homophobic stuff in middle school. There was also, interestingly, a socioeconomic standpoint of it as well. So I grew up in the projects in Harlem and... Mm -hmm. You know, my family arrived to from DR, like, probably... I, w I was born here within months of them arriving. Wow. So, um, we grew up in the projects in Harlem. My dad worked uh, as a superintendent mm -hmm. um, in the... Kind of like a caretaker ex, I think was his title, in the building. And then everything was good. You know, we're, this is the 80s, yeah. early 90s. So, this is like crack epidemic. Yeah you know, gangs were out slashing people's faces. It was, um, it was, Harlem it was dangerous. Was, Harlem was not a place you went out to. Exactly. So, you know, my parents tried their best to like cocoon us in there, but you know, I was quote unquote gifted and talented, identified as that. And then when I was in, in elementary school, they allowed us to take a test to go to middle school outside 
of the area. So I wound up going to the middle school in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Where did you go? I went to this place called Delta Honors. It's MS54. Where Booker, on the Upper West Side? Booker T. Booker oh, Booker T. T on like 108 or something? Well, yeah, and Columbus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. I know where's that. Yeah, so that's where I went. And I was like very uncomfortable. I was like, what is going on? So when you were taking the test, <laughs> did, you, did you know kind of like what you were being set up for? Like, nah. Even even the term like gifted and talented, like do you remember hearing that word and be like, wait, that's me? Like like what was that like? I think they they differentiated us, so we were a class, so we were the GNT class. The GNT class, okay. So like within so then within this elementary school is like you know you had the students and then you had the GNT students, mm. and it was pretty much the same um, students all the way from kindergarten up until fifth grade. Oh. So we were. We were close, but we were also identified as quote-unquote quote special. You know what I'm saying? Or the nerds, if you will. Exactly. So, and that, and that's, that's interesting because I think at a certain age, being a nerd is like cool, accepted, glorified, right? But at a young age, that may not be the cool thing to do. Yeah. Or even like those aren't the cool kids potentially, right? Yeah. Like did you feel any like, I don't want to be part of this? Or like did you embrace that idea of like I'm doing well at an early age? I embraced that idea because of it, the, the, the label that we give to children and to people and to things is there is a bias of something being inherently good or inherently bad. And I think when we are looking at um, a, a label like gifted and talented, yeah, it yeah. leans toward uh, a positive right, right, right. Um, from a societal standpoint. And so you take that and you take the context within my, you know, that is my family. Yeah. Essentially, my mom having a first grade education, mm-hmm. having to pay someone how to, you know, write her her name, teach her the alphabet on the plane over from VR. Wow. She says she paid someone $20. Then my dad, who had a seventh grade education. Right. So you take that and then this label yeah. and then the family unit and the educational system use it as a positive thing. And it's something to be celebrated. So, you know, my sisters, I had two older sisters. They didn't get the chance to go to college. They were teenage um, moms as well. So, yeah. like, se- at 17, 18 or so, yeah. they had their kids. I was an uncle at, like, 10. Wow. <laughs> Shout out to my family. Shout out to, you know, my nieces who I love. And now my niece has a, a son, so I'm a grand uncle, you know? That's so wild. So I think these, this messaging around who I was who I represented to my family was a positive one. And I would say from an educational standpoint, an academic standpoint, I never faced, I guess what you would say, bullying because of being smart or being a nerd. It was always focused on, you know, being gay. I don't even know what they, how kids were even understood this concept or what mannerisms they were picking up. But there was that. And then there was, there was then the socioeconomic aspect to go back to that. Because, because it's interesting, like if you weren't, you know, part of GNT, it sounds like an entertainment group or something. (laughs) (laughs) GNT entertainment. (laughs) If you weren't part of GNT and you weren't placed in that school, you would potentially be placed in a school with other people that may have been in that same socioeconomic status. But it's because you were placed in that school where you may be now are surrounded by people that aren't in your socioeconomic status, right? Exactly. So okay. what wound up happening in that elementary school in Harlem, which was literally right across from the street from the projects that I grew up, it was like purely black and Latino students. Right. Right. And then now we 
test out of that elementary school, go to this, you know, right. school where everyone is gifted and talented right. in the Upper West Side. Mm -hmm. And you're essentially getting, you know, proximity to a private education mm -hmm. in the public system right. with people who live in this neighborhood. So, you know, we had this, this project that I'll never forget. It's like one of those critical defining moments in life mm -hmm. that literally has stayed with me from a spiritual standpoint since it happened till now, till my life, this point in my life. It, you know, we got asked to do a project. We rotated around different people's houses mm -hmm. and I got to this condo from one of the students who was where one of the students lived. What do you mean and rotated people's houses? So like we had the school project okay. and then they were like, oh, it was decided that we would go to different people's houses oh, for and the project. For, to work on this project. Mm -hmm. So I wind up going to this condo in the Upper West Side of Manhattan and being like, <laughs> like, what is going on? This is this. I didn't even understand and know that people lived like this. Yeah. yeah so then, yeah, of yeah. course. It, so that was shocking to me. Yeah. And then it comes time to go to my house. Mm -hmm. And we got, we got these kids going up the elevator with, you know, shit in the, in the, in the elevator, piss, piss in the elevator, graffiti all over the walls, going up to, you know, our spot where we lived. And they were just like, where are we? You know, so you yeah. have this exchange yeah. of differences. I don't know what that experience had on them. Right. I know for me, it was one of the most shocking, like, yeah. horrifying, yeah. shame-ridden like experiences. And, you know, I've, now in my life, I've come to my whole life purpose, honestly, is to grapple with, with these issues. And that's ultimately, it's that really core story that brought me to where I am today. Everything that I do, yeah. I try to focus in on why are things existing in the way that they are and then how can I bring equity and justice to it? And yeah. part of that has been finding the authenticity within myself, yeah. finding the, the power and the strength of the identities that I have, both yeah. in the present that my ancestors have in the past yeah. and then how I can use that plus the privileges that I've now gained, both earned and unearned privileges, right? Yeah. My unearned privileges are that I'm a man. My unearned privileges are that I'm a cis man. Yeah. My unearned privileges, I mean, th those are like my two big ones that I identify with. Sure, my sure. earned privileges are now that I'm a doctor, yeah. are that I've gotten higher education, I've gotten to go to Ivy League you know, schools. Yeah. Those are some examples of, you know, of those identities that I hold. And so to create equity, to cre create justice is both honoring myself and yeah. my ancestors it um in in our in who we are and anchoring myself in that yeah. while creating justice for those identities for yeah, the socioeconomic um disparities that exist in in our world I, I had a very similar experience and by the way that would be such a fascinating study like during those i love how you described it just like because it is it's an exchange Right. And it's not meant to be that. It's just like, hey, we need a place to work on this and we could just meet at the library every week. But instead, why don't we just like so it isn't 
impacting one specific person, like, let's make it comfortable for everybody. One week at your house, one week at your house, right? You know what I mean? And, like, the output of that experience is just a class project. But what if you interviewed every single person in that? Because those conversations never happened. It was like, yo, what was it like for you to bring people over to your house? Or yeah. what was it like for you to go to someone else's house? Like, those are, that, I mean, at, at such a young age, too, I wonder, like, what kids pick up on. Yeah. Because I went through the same thing, but I also grew up in the projects. Um, it, it was weird because it, I because li- uh, it was the projects, but it was, it was on the Upper West Side, so it was on 88th Street. So, like, I was surrounded mm-hmm. by, like, a nice neighborhood, but just this one block, mm-hmm. which is the projects. Um, and I remember having anxiety around bringing people over to my place. And I remember walking with, like, one of my best friends at the time. And like going to the apartment and then we passed by this really nice building. And I remember telling him, it was like, oh, I'm going to move here next year. Mm. We had no plans of moving. Mm. We couldn't afford that building. Right. right, right. But it was, just, it was me trying to like pre-qualify what he was about to walk into. And I was like, oh, this is only temporary. Yeah. Meanwhile, we had no plans of moving. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the crazy thing for me, and I don't know if you experienced this, but like, once they went upstairs and experienced the hospitality of, like, my abuela and, you know, my, my grandpa and my mom, they were like, yo, fuck my place. I want to come to your place every time. Because yeah. my grandma, you know, <laughs> is, is the nonstop, like, uh, hospitality. is like, oh, you want fruit? You want juice? You want this? Tostone. And I was like, yo, this place is lit. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, but it was this really interesting moment for me of, like, damn, should I be embarrassed about home? Mm. Like... Like, people really like coming over here. Mm. I don't know. It was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have that same experience? It was... Because in- a lot of what you were talking about was the anxiety leading up to it. But then you had the actual, let's do the project kind of here. Yeah. Thank you for taking me back to this space. It's a very, like... You know, eventually, I had to tell my grandma, like, stop coming in. Because she was doing too much. <laughs> yeah. And they were like, no, nah, don't talk to your grandma like that. Let her come in. I don't know. It was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it, I haven't... You're like taking me back to I, I. It's almost like I've intellectualized that experience now. As time has too, gone yeah. by, I can like see the impact that it's had in my life. Yeah. But as we're discussing it, I am recalling a, mem- a memory when we're sitting down mm-hmm. and we're on the floor working on this project, and my mom's um, like is g- gives us food. Yeah, yeah. And mommy, we didn't let anyone in our house. We didn't let cousins in. We didn't let. You really? know what I'm saying? So it was very much like. Because mommy would be like, tú no te vas a quedar allá, tú no, tú oh, no te vas a quedar same. en casa ajena. Same. So it was like... I never slept over anybody's house, yeah. So the idea, I don't even know how I did this at 10 or 11, whatever, however old I was, but the idea of like bringing people over. But I recall that my mom was incredibly gracious. And when I reflect on that experience, it, she brought me so much pride. So it, it mirrors, I think, what... God, now I'm emotional. <laughs> it, what were you so it, prideful about? It, like, it was prideful in that et, et, et this, yeah. is, this is our house and y'all are coming into our house yeah. and I'm, we're going to be we're going to be hospitable. We're going right. to be how anyone would be if someone you know comes into the home and, and the welcoming and the and even as a little boy, there was shame, but then there was also like pride in my mother. Because mm-hmm. these stories that were told around, at least for me, around, you know, my mom having to, you know, to learn yeah. how, to, how to write essentially on a plane. When she reflects on it, I oftentimes would hear like the shame también in it. Mm. And sometimes that was even things that I would induce in some ways, like 
for example, if we had a consent form, right, mm -hmm. I would always give it to my dad to sign because he had the quote-unquote nicer signature. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So the ways in which even my acculturation and the bullying that I was experiencing around my difference manifested in behaviors in how I got home. Nah, I'm going to have my mom sign. I'm sorry, my, my dad sign the form, not my mom. Yeah. So what does that then do to my mom, right? Oh. So then thinking about that challenge for my mom right right and then now seeing her being just as kind and just as amazing right to me or rather to you know these students who are coming in yeah um despite her not you know being like no no one comes over to the house right, despite right. all those things she was amazing so it, it was there was pride right. for her and that's what i saw then and then I think it's that juxtaposition of the pride in the identity, despite all the generational challenges that we face. Right, right. And the hospitality and the humility, mm -hmm. and also the shame of having students there. Like that yeah. juxtaposition, yeah, yeah. it almost labeled it as something, it reinforced this idea something is deeply wrong in yeah. like society, and right, something right. is not, something needs to be changed. Yeah, and I, and I wonder too how much of that experience, just like so many of our experiences, is a story we're making up in our head versus people making us feel shameful. Mm -hmm. What do you think that, that mix was for you? Because there were also people, you know, making fun of you, bullying you, that were making you feel shameful as well. But oftentimes, you know, in that class project, my friend didn't tell me anything. That was right. me telling myself that I should feel shame because of this, because... I was just comparing myself. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, I, I recall the faces, mm. you know? So there's a lot that was not said verbally. Yeah. A lot was nonverbal. What do, you, what do they say? It's like, you won't remember what they said, but you'll remember how they made you yeah, feel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So that, that is definitely the resonating, you know, thoughts and memories and emotions from that period of time. There it was not, there it was not, you know, discreet or like tent tangible yeah. um uh, i mean you could see it but no one necessarily said anything yeah, yeah. but all the other bullying was very like very concrete you yeah. know this is we're making fun of you for x reason yeah so and in those scenarios of bullying like how did that impact how you showed up because like did you change certain mannerisms or how you spoke or how you showed up because you then wanted to start avoiding that treatment no Interesting. No. So I would go home. It was a lot of crying, a lot of depression, a lot of mm. like su suicidal thoughts. I mean, we're talking about <laughs> yeah. like middle school years, you know, yeah, yeah. a lot of parent teacher office visits to discuss like how I was emotionally responding to things and what environments could be created for me to, to make it safer. And then I would go home and honestly, like watch tons of MTV, like listen to, like this was pop, you know, peak pop era. Yeah. I would lose myself in like music videos. Yeah. I would learn Britney Spears dances and just like <laughs> dance my heart out. I mean, it was whatever I had to do to, to cope. And I'm glad that I, that I was able to do that. My family did not know how to manage that at all. Yeah. I'm I just mean, imagining going to like parent-teacher conferences and just like, I don't, yeah, that's tough. It's just like, uh, it's a lot to deal with for, for you and 
for them not knowing how to help you yeah. in those situations. Yeah. I'm, I'm imagining, too, like, <laughs> like your mom saying, like, nah, I don't really like people in my house or I don't want you going over there. But in some ways, she kind of, like, made an exception because it was for school. I... I don't know what was going on through her head. She probably does not even remember this, yeah. you know, <laughs> at but, all. But, but it's, I, it's an interesting question. I, th I think a lot of, I think, like, my mom, she's like, oh, if it's for work, like, do what you got to do. I'm not going to mm -hmm. call you during those hours. Because there's, like, a lot riding on the line for that education, for that opportunity kind of yeah. thing. When you were thinking about career-wise, right, even a little bit after, like, you're not going to these G&T schools. Or you're not trying to go to Ivy League just, just to, like do nothing with it, right? Like, right. what were some of your ambitions early on where you were just like, I got to do something with this? Yeah, I mean, w with what exactly? With all these opportunities that are coming my way. So, I mean, that, that, those, were, those were journeys, man. Those were journeys because I, after, after high school, I went, to, I went to University of Buffalo, and that's where I, so that's where I did undergrad. That was, I started in 2004. Okay. And then, let me see. So, the, by the time I was in high school, I didn't know. I thought I wanted to be an architect. Really? So, I go into, like, college, and I'm like, let's figure, let's figure out what's going what's gonna to happen. Why did you want to be an architect? I really like the, I really like design. Mm -hmm. I would, like, have this, you know, the little marble notebook? Of course. Of I still course. have mine, funny enough. And I would use paint, like, Microsoft Paint. To draw how the houses that I envisioned that I would like when I was older, no. and it was like white picket fence type. They didn't stuff. look like the projects, <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. But you know, it's like that's what it was, and I I still have those paintings. They're crazy. It's like I, the one is from '97, bro. And so I, you, you were you were dreaming as you were designing. Yeah, that's deep. Yeah. It's, I, the pictures are, are like, they're funny. Now I, they mean something very different to me as I like process power, privilege, money, yeah. and my relationship to these things. Because then I was coming from a shame-based place. Mm -hmm. There was, I need to escape the project. That's also why I went to Buffalo. I need to escape the you know, homophobia that I was facing. I need to escape the shame around you know, our family being broke. Yeah. I need to escape all of these things. And that just led me to a journey that in the process of me trying to escape, mm -hmm. I found myself mm -hmm. and then came back to the space where I once was. How did you, how did you find yourself? So, I mean, again, long journey, but the, what wound up happening is I, in college, I had the opportunity to go to Uganda. Like I went a, to like a study abroad. It was like a nah. It was like a friend of mine was like, "Hey, there's this organization. They're looking for volunteers to help do like, to help you know a small village in in Uganda. It's like a two month opportunity." And I was uh, like, "I got you. I got you." I was like, "Let's go." It was during the summer. Yeah, so it was yeah, between yeah. like, I don't know, junior and senior year or something like that. I was like, "Let's go." So I went, and then it was there that I realized that the poverty that our community was experiencing was no different than the poverty that people in Uganda were experiencing in the village that we were in. Gotcha. And so not only that, but then I started seeing them that they were dealing with a lot of similar health issues. Not all similar, but somewhat similar. Okay. And that's when I was like, wait, but also like there's a link between the environments that we're living in 
and whether we're healthy or not. Mm. And when I saw that click, it was, it was almost like the things that I saw when I was younger were revealing themselves in people's physical health. And I could see the links across countries. Gotcha. So when I went back to, um, got back to the US, back to college, I started seeing it everywhere. What do you mean? I started seeing you know, people who, were, who, who I grew up in the building mm-hmm. um, with, in the projects, like with the, the swelling from their ankles. Yeah. I started seeing the edema. I started seeing the you know, signs of heart failure. I started right. seeing high blood pressure. I started seeing all these things. And then that's when I said, I need to learn more about this. I need to learn more about the link. I wound up going to, uh, after college, I came out to my family. That's a whole nother story. Um, and I was like, I didn't want to go back to New York City. It was too dark and uh, gloomy. Uh, Buffalo is also the second gloomiest place in the United States. So I was like, I need sun. Um, and I want to explore this idea of what the relationship between health and socioeconomic position is. Right. So I did AmeriCorps which is a domestic volunteer program, kind of like the Peace Corps. Yeah. And I went moved to Los Angeles, making $12,000 a year on food stamps. And there I found the community of activists. I found the, you know, of other, like a lot of Chicano activists. Yeah, I was yeah. working for a nonprofit at the time. I was working in childhood obesity in Orange County in the city of Santa Ana. Shout out to Santa Ana. And the- oh, someone that works with me is, it lives over there. Really? Yeah, yeah. He- Name's Felipe, shout out to Felipe. Um, he talks about that town all the time, yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean. I definitely want to visit. Santa Ana is I like. work out there, yeah. Oh man, it's, it's, it's nestled in Orange County, which mm-hmm. is the, which is obviously there's biases around Orange County based off of like the media and all these things, but there's a huge immigrant community there. Not only Latino, but Asian and a whole bunch of people from all different walks of life. But you know, media focuses on the rich, Laguna Beach, all this yeah, stuff. Yeah. But there are literally made a show about it. Yeah, exactly. The OC, right? I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what it, but you know, in there there's tons of people of color whose like need healthcare needs and other issues get pushed under the under the, the carpet because mm-hmm. you know, they don't want that sort of media attention, negative media negative quote unquote media attention. Yeah. But anyways that's such an so, inter- that's a, that's such an interesting example again of like you wanting to escape a certain environment and literally like leaving, yeah. right? Because yeah, I don't know. That, that's just really interesting. It's like first is Buffalo, then it's Los Angeles, and I can't wait to get back to. I'm sure this come. I'm sure I'm. This is me <laughs> making up a story, but I'm sure you coming back here also has to do with like you finally accepting, being comfortable, all of those kind of things. and be, You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm sure absolutely. we're going to get back to that. Absolutely. What wound up happening, so, so you know, I found, I got nestled in this community of activism. It was like, at that time, we were doing work on... And those are people that look like you? The, yeah, these are mostly Mexican, Mexican okay. like Chicano. Yeah, yeah. And I will get into that because I think there's a, a nuanced difference there that was very important for oh, me yeah. to experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I found this, like, spirit of people, like... Nosotros no vamos a defender, like we're proud of who we are and we're going to, you know, dismantle systems of oppression. And that resonated with me like so much. So, yo me pegué con ello. I joined the Latino Equality Alliance, which at the time was was helpful with marriage equality. So, mm-hmm. I would go out and do some activism work there. También con um, 
I, th that was mostly it. But, and in my job, I was doing a lot of HIV work. So HIV, highly, you know, political, highly mm -hmm. social. Another, yeah. you know, sad and obvious example of how socioeconomic background, you know, leads to disease, like the prevalence yeah. of, you know, the risk, I would say, you know, of, you know, people living with HIV or, yeah. uh, um, you know, people living with HIV is linked to, is linked to where they, the zip codes that they're from, yeah. the, the different other aspects of their identity, whether they're gay or not, you know, LGBTQ, all of these issues that are inherent in some of the struggles that we face. There's, it's no surprise that these yeah. things have manifested in our communities. And so I learned a, a lot about, you know, slogans during the AIDS movement, like silence equals death, you know? Silence equals death means silence is shame. Shame, shame is silence. Yeah. Shame is death, right? So, and the opposite of that to me, and, you know, and in my definition of what authenticity is, right. authenticity is life for me. Being in a space of being inauthentic is death. Mm. And I see that not even now even more so as a doctor. Mm. I see how when we are not fully ourselves, as either people who are providing healthcare to others, if we cannot fully be ourselves in the work that we do, we can't fight for the rights to build systems that are taking care of people in the way that they should be. Tell me, tell me more about that. Like, what? what do you... I know I'm going on a segue. I'm no, sorry. no, no. It's 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 a it's a really good segue into you know the work the work you're doing now as well. Like, what do you mean by that? Like, in what ways by are... so if if you're not authentic, like, how does that detrimental to the communities that you're serving? Or the people you're serving because because what happens if you're in a room where a policy is being developed on you know bringing in interpreters or who to hire or mm -hmm. the research that's being done that drives the treatments that we decide mm -hmm. to do on x population or you know the timing of those treatments or the timing of those screenings if you don't have people in the room who feel comfortable enough to be vocal around what we know is the disparities that exist in communities of color mm -hmm. and that you know we have nuanced needs that need to be taken care of if you have no one advocating at higher levels for uh, or because they don't feel safe to advocate for the, those those changes to a system then they uh, then those changes never happen what what are some things early on that you would just like because I think a lot of I think a lot of things or systems that are in place are just because like it it may have just been in place for years and no one has said anything. Like, what are some things as you you were maybe in in grad school or like you're working? You're just like that makes no sense. Like somebody needs to say something about this. I mean, the cl a classic good example, which now thankfully the healthcare system is in some areas beginning to address, is like kidney function. Huh kidney function okay so when you go to the doctor and you get your standard set of labs there is a something called gfr which is a measure of how well your kidney is doing okay that what is normal and what is abnormal that value that's the cutoff for that value is different if you're african-american or black versus if you're not interesting so when you look at this idea of race, which is completely a man-made construct. Sure. I mean, it exists obviously in skin color changes, but genetically we're, you know, the, the, 
that, that's not it's not a thing okay. because of the when when these values were first created very blatant racism at that time believed that you know people who were black african american had more mass muscle mass and so because of these differences different standards needed to be set across the population so let's say that happened i don't mm -hmm. I, I don't know exactly when it happened let's say it happened 70 years ago okay we now fast forward to a time where we're able to now give perform kidney transplants mm. so what happens when the cutoff score for someone who has who is black has is determined to have a higher kidney function mm -hmm. than someone who is not black because of this concept of race that means that people who are not black by this criteria might have access to kidney transplants earlier on oh. than those who are not so that's how we racialize medicine that's how medicine and the the idea of diagnosing people yeah and also from the diagnosis then you get treatments right right that's how that becomes racialized that's yeah. how you manifest racism within medicine interesting and if no one is being catching that right? right if no one's saying why are we doing this right right then it's just gonna keep on going yeah and you're gonna get disparities in kidney transplant which means that more people of color more black people are gonna be dying you know right. from right from not having access to organs which everyone deserves yeah it's interesting too because what we're talking about is like impact on patients but i think even like, I also want to get into the impact of you just, like, getting the job. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's interesting because I saw, I saw pictures of, like, on your Instagram, you're, like, in your coat with a Dominican emblem on your, on your white coat yeah. and in braids. And I'm just like, I've never seen a doctor that looks like yeah. that. <laughs> like, did you go to the interviews like that? Like, did, did it go to a point where you felt comfortable getting that? Did you meet resistance along the way? People being like cut your hair before you go into you know what i mean like what was that process like of just getting the job yeah like what, what was that like um <laughs> again it, it it goes back to the the elements of let me continue the last question that we asked as an answer to this to okay. this question okay so i talked about how i was in la yeah. in la i i wound up you know being part of this community at the same time within a year of me having arrived there my dad passed away. Mm. So I had to make this decision. He passed away from high blood pressure and had wow. a cardiac arrest. So the same things that I was helping patients with in Los Angeles, yeah. I didn't even know that my dad had, you know, this health issue going on. So yeah. when he passed away, it was a complete shock. He was fine one day and then he was just gone the next. Yeah. So at that point, I had to make a decision. Do I stay here? Do I not? Uh, meaning in LA. Mm -hmm. I wound up staying because my dad was like, oh, mijo va a ser doctor. <laughs> you know how it is. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so, and mind you, this is 2009. I didn't wind up going to medical school, medical school in 2015. So because of my financial situation, because I still hadn't taken like the required classes, I was trying to beef up my application. You know, I, I wasn't ready to apply yet, but I needed to financially ground myself. While all of that was happening, I'm also realizing that where I'm, that I, I'm obviously Latino, mm -hmm. but other people do not view me as Latino. In Los Angeles. In Los Angeles. So I would 
you know, back then I had my buzz, my hair buzz. I always had my New York, you know, my 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 Yankee cap on, and I would the go uniform. to the. The, the uniform, the regular like Tim's, like nothing. Like I'm like, what's the problem? And so then I would, I lived in a predominantly Latino community, but I would go into the stores, and I would like talk to them in Spanish. They'd be like, "What? Yeah. Y cómo aprendiste español?" Yeah. I'm like, I'm like mi fam mi familia. Like I was very confused, and <laughs> they would be like, "Pero tu familia dónde aprendieron ellos?" And I'm like, <laughs> like where did they? <laughs> and I'm like. Eh, Ellos son de República Dominicana. And they're like, ¿y dónde en África es eso? The, what? So then that, to me, was like, Ooh. people are like reflecting on me. I don't know if that's the, the right way to, to say in a way that I have never seen before. Right. In New York City, right. we're taken for granted. Meaning like, <laughs> you know, oh yeah, that guy's definitely Dominican. Yeah, like, yeah. easy. Yeah. You know, and there's this like spectrum that is understood of different backgrounds that people are from yeah but because caribbean culture is so limited on sure. the west coast people just didn't know how to place me they they were very confused and, and it was the first time was it the first time that you were that you were like oh people see me as black yeah and then it was the first time that i began seeing myself as black interesting to take it back to like what i yeah. was saying much earlier right like yeah. my gay identity i kind of explored that and learned that while i was in la and simultaneously came to a realization that I was also black. Was LA also a time when you felt comfortable and safe being gay compared to earlier instances? It was, it was, right. it was. It was but that's, a, a, that's an interesting process. That's an interesting point as well of like you escaping and finding comfort in that escape. I keep coming back to this. Like when you come back to New York, like that must've been scary. Because New York, in some ways, is associated with the the not safeness that you've experienced earlier in your life. Yeah, but what wound up happening through college and through LA was an affirmation of that identity. So when I would come back to visit New York, yeah. I would go off to the gay clubs. At that mm. point, I had come out to my family. Right. I had become an adult so much so that I mean, no me no me importaba ya. Like yeah, it was yeah. like I'll do what I need to do, and I'm gonna live the life that I need to live, and that's it. Like if y'all don't like it, that's fine. But what what was that moment where you were just like, fuck it? If y'all don't like it, yeah. It it I don't know if it was a moment. It could, I th- it could I, have been a buildup of moments as well, but yeah, I don't they, know if they, there was one. They were just like, fuck this. I'm good. It was it was the coming out. <laughs> I actually wrote about it. It's funny. So through Dominican writers, I wrote this short story called Batalla Sobre el Sancocho, which is when I came out to my mom and my dad. Okay. So I came out to my sisters when I was 16, and they were like, that they were like, do whatever you want, but but don't tell mommy and papi. They're yeah. gonna like flip out. Don't tell them until after you graduate from college. So like this validation of that. Then oh I could, you know, yeah. then I could exert an individuality because I would have gained enough respect to say, now I can say those things. I, I had a friend that they didn't get that advice, but they told themselves that that same advice of, you know, they didn't go to medical school, but he said, when I I'm gonna tell them when I get my MBA. Because, right. you know, Dominican families, like, when you get your diploma, they hang that shit up somewhere, <laughs> right. Right? right? So they, they wanted to feel worthy enough in some ways of, like, when I get my MBA, that's when I'm going to tell them. It, I'm just seeing, like, Yeah, yeah. But, but they got the same advice of, like, tell whoever you want, just don't tell. Yeah, man, that's tough. 
I think it's a real thing. Yeah. You know, that in that in the what winds up happening in that story is I'm watching, I'm just in my room, I'm may, maybe like two weeks out from graduating from college, and then I undergrad um, or no. from undergrad, okay. yeah. yeah. From undergrad, and then sorry, there's a lot of time jumps. <laughs> it's <here>. all good. <laughs> so, you know, I I'm watching TV and it's like true life. Remember that documentary yeah. show on yeah. TV? And this guy who's like, you know, very anxious about coming out yeah. but like everyone his around him is like we know but he, <laughs> you know but he, he was like he was anxious about it yeah. he did it and everyone was like it's good like we all know and at that point I was like what the hell am I waiting for like do they know yeah. so I literally got up and I was like I'm over it because I had been going to like gay I've been giving living yeah. my gay life you know in as a college student and so I was like you know what's I'm just gonna tell them. Yeah. And so then I walked into the kitchen and as I'm you're making like, sancocho? as my mom is making sancocho. And then I tell them and she just loses it. And my dad is like, he <laughs> like continues eating the sancocho. <laughs> just like, he's like, whatever, like, which was a surprise to our family. But, you know, I think at that point it was just like the cat was out of the bag. Like, I, came out and I, at that point I was fed up. I was just like, yeah. this is like, I am living my life and the only people who don't know are my parents. Yeah. So I think once that happened, it was like, I was free. In LA, I then re further reinforced that sense of like my queerness, my gayness and felt safe in that space. I mean, obviously there's still things that happen and we've seen very unfortunate like deaths, re murders recently. Yeah because of these things but you know overall i feel a lot of gratitude fast forward to like the black identity that i was talking about when i once i did wind up get going into medical school um was right around when george floyd mm. events happened and given that was a real wake-up moment for a lot of people yeah i mean obviously but yeah 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 i think given the my ownership of that identity that i had gained in la plus these events happening, I just felt really called. And, you know, that aspect of social justice came back to me right. within the framework of being in medical school. And I started, that's when I started growing out my hair. I used to have slick back hair that I would blow dry and all that stuff. And once that event happened, I just kept growing my hair. And then it was a fro. And then it was this, and then it was that. So that was 2016. So this, this was sort of like while you're taking classes? This is while I'm taking classes. Yeah. I got my nose pierced. Like, I was just like, fuck everything. I was just so upset. And thankfully, all, you know, because I think different institutions can have the capacity to respond yeah. differently in this yeah. situation for how I decided to present myself, yeah. both in classes, both with patients and with you know, that was not, it was, no one told me to change how, how I looked. Um, no one told you to change? No, no one. Like, your, how you looked was never met with any resistance? It, very little. Very okay. little. I can't even, like, I think people might say something, but they were, no one ever told me you can't look like this. And so, That's interesting, yeah. yeah. And so, for me, for me, it's often people that look like me telling me, because, you know, they are, they just want me to be successful. Yeah. They want to look out for me. And it's, 
it they don't they don't say like do this, but they're just like you you may be better off if you do this. Yeah. That that that's kind of like how it's typically worded. So this is the interesting piece. Yeah. That didn't happen to me during medical school, just oh, to be clear. Okay. It happened to me later. Oh, like okay. So when you when you're kind of like working and, and going for these certain opportunities. Exactly. So what winds up happening is you go and you you do your classes, you know, you learn all your classes how to be a doc, all the anatomy, all the physiology, all the drugs. Yeah. All the clinical care that you're supposed to do. And then you go into clinical settings, meaning in the hospital or clinics right. to, you know, help take care of patients and to continue learning from, from the other senior doctors. But then once you finish medical school, you're technically a doctor. But in order for you to practice, right. meaning to see patients, you have to go through residency. Right. You got to put in the hours of like working with patients, et cetera. Exactly. In your specific... Spe- medical specialty. Sure. I wound up choosing surgery, which on the spectrum is very conservative. And so, yes, I may have presented, had my long hair. Medical school was somewhat of a more protected space. Yeah. But now that I was officially entering the workforce, yes, absolutely. You, and you also I had went conversations to... around people telling me that I should cut my hair, that I should look different because they didn't think that I would be given opportunities. And it's interesting, too, because you went to medical school in a very let's call it liberal part of the world in California. I was in San Francisco. In San Francisco in particular, yeah. in particular. Yeah. So, so when you're getting this resistance though, you've got to feel a, an essence of like, there's a lot of pressure of me to get this opportunity, right? Like, how, how did you react to that resistance? Were you just like, that person's right, let me cut my hair and like do what I got to do to get this certain opportunity? It was all those years of prior experience. It was the years from when I graduated from high school, which is when I really kind of began to come out, which is 2009, Mm -hmm. to to fast forward to when I'm applying to become a surgeon, Mm -hmm. which is 2020. Yeah, it's a long time. That's 11 years of me learning who I am, of me learning what it looks like to be of service in community, to be along my community, to be grounded by my community, those were, that's a long time. Yeah. And, and to me, and growing out my hair was a further substantiation. It was like a culmination of who I believed myself to be and how I wanted to be in the world. That was a non-negotiable for me. You telling me to manage my physical appearance so that I can gain an opportunity? Absolutely not. I, I, I couldn't. Not only that, but when I applied to, my, to surgery, literally the first sentence in my personal statement was, as a gay, Afro-Latino, cisgender man who grew up in the hood, I feel a strong responsibility to take care of my community period that we're gonna start there because i need to put myself out there in that way because i need to make sure that if you invite me to an interview you know who you're getting and that i'm going to be supported in my identity and what i'm going to be bringing to the table so if you're not picking up what i'm putting down i don't i don't want to i don't want to be a part of it and i needed to get the validation that I would do that because that is the whole reason that I'm on this journey. 
it's not for me. It's so that now I have this privilege and I have, you know, power way more, especially like from where we came from, this whole journey, I have a responsibility to my community. Yeah. That's why I'm here. If you are going to not accept me for that which I'm bringing, that bringing I, I don't want to be here. And furthermore, I don't have to give up those things in order to accomplish that. Being a doctor is just one way to make that happen. Yeah. But you don't have to do that. You could be a community organizer. Yeah. You could work at a nonprofit organization. I already had my master's in public health también that I got from Harvard. So it's yeah. like, I could work in public health. Yeah. I could do a whole bunch of stuff. So it's a choice that I'm making. Yes. It's a choice that I'm making to engage the work that I want to do in this way, meaning in being a doctor. Yeah. But I'm not held to that, yeah. you know? I, I say like Angel Curandero, that's why I put on my Instagram. And it's because my, our community's ability to heal is not at, at the, it, it's, not, it's not held by positionality. It's yeah. not held by being a doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not held by having to go through these things. Healing happens with us. It happens in our community. And so my ability to heal myself and to create justice in the world, which is what I, what I really feel you know, I'm called to do, does not require for me to be a doctor. Yeah. So to, for me, it was easy to put myself out there like that and in a non-negotiable way. That's, that's dope, man. Uh, and I, I know we spoke a, little bit of, you spoke a little bit about the resistance, but I think it's also important to highlight like, the times when you're, you're working and your patients look like you. Yeah. And they're just like... <laughs> it's so good. What do they say? They're like, oh, I'm, 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 just wait, I'm still waiting for the doctor. He's like, no, no, that's me. It's, it's, it's funny because <laughs> there's so many stories. Um, it, it, there's a lot of stories. Even if you want to get into like the times you wear your white coat and don't wear your white coat, like, that's an interesting dynamic as well. Yeah, I try not to because, again, what we wear how we look has implications for how people respond to us. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of biases um, that are tied to wearing a white coat. And there's a lot of power differential that's put up right when you walk into a room when someone is coming in with a white coat. Mm -hmm. And so I try, to, I try to eliminate that because I'm not coming into a room in a I know more than you about your body and about your health I'm a highly, I don't need that white coat to like create that. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. fact, I would say that by bringing in that energy probably takes away from actually having a real conversation with right, right. patients around like what their health issues are. Right, right. Sometimes people hold back things because yeah. they're scared of being judged. Yeah. Right? Right. And so if that's the case and we're not creating safe spaces for people to be authentic, right, right. right to like patients to be authentic right. or to share who they are, then we're not really doing a good job of taking care of them because we're missing information. Yeah. Right. It's very similar to like, like I think a lot of people feel comfortable sharing stories with me here because I'm not a therapist and I'm not like, we're kind of, we're having some deep conversations, yeah. but I didn't go into it saying like, this is going to be a therapy session. Right, right. Which is like going through your experience. It's, it, I, I, I would imagine it's similar. Yeah, yeah. for sure. But, but you say you do have stories of, of like you walking in and people, oh, I'm just waiting for the doctor. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. A lot of them are I, I, maybe half and half positive, half negative. 
because you get your positive bias from that interaction and then you get a negative bias an example um let's start with the negative because i'd rather end up yeah 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 that's fair fair. so negative example i walk into a room and i'm actually just have scrubs and a and a scrub cap on i don't have this thing (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah i would hope not yeah (laughs) so you know i'm walking in like that i got uh you know a scrub cap on very regular sure even with the badge that says like doctor on it and i'll go in i'll be like you know how i introduce myself and then they're like, we're waiting for the doctor. And I'm like, oh, like, I'm, help, I'm one of the doctors helping to take care of you. And then they're like, oh, but you don't look like a doctor. Like, people literally say that. People have literally said that to me. It's not an uncommon experience for us, especially us, of, you know, people of color in the, and specifically like black, Latino people yeah. to walk into a room and be confused for other types of like, workers which obviously no disrespect at all but it's despite like something that says it yeah and people like not believing right or like not trusting and kind of having to it's even happened to me in public sometimes people i'll meet be we went on a trip recently someone's like oh what do you do i was like oh i'm a doctor they're like you're a doctor Right. And then, so then that's the negative bias. That's sure. where you see what society sees in a way. Right. What society stereotypes are about how we're supposed to look. Right, right. Like, how do you even answer that? Like, yeah. So it's, I just. It's like, it's, have you seen the videos online where it's like, oh, you don't look Dominican. Oh, better than. And he comes back with the fucking, like, yeah, the exactly. whole shit. Yeah. That's what it reminds <laughs> exactly. me of. It's like, oh, let me come back with my doctorate. Like, what do you. Yeah. Exactly, but, exactly. But you said there's also like positive biases as well. Yeah, I mean, the positive stuff by far, that's what I focus on. And that's why I come to work the way that I do. I'll go in with my cornrows. Thankfully, no one, you know, from a from a uh, employment standpoint, no one says anything. I can't say that about everywhere else in America. Sure. But for here, no, no one says anything. And I go into patient rooms and they're like, oh my God, you're a doc. Like, I've taken care of little kids who are like, OD happy, Aww. and and I had I there's this one memory that I have You're of like this Superman, bro. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a mutually powerful exchange because you know in this situation, a woman was like, "Hey, I finished seeing them," and then she called me back. She's like, "Hey, just wanted to let you know that, you know, my son said he was very happy to see you." because he's never seen a doctor with cornrows or a doctor that looks like him. Oh. And the mom said that to me, and I was just like... <laughs> like, can I record you saying that so I could, whenever I'm depressed, I can listen to that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so it substantiates it when families, like the need for it, for being ourselves coming to work from a healing standpoint, when comments like that are made by families or by patients. Yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've taken care of Dominican people who are like... And I'm just yeah. like, that's my mom speaking. Yeah. They're being like, people are saying we're proud of you. And I'm like, when you hear that, the yeah. s- it's like my mom is saying that. It's yeah. like my family is saying that. Yeah. And that is, it's, it's bi-directionally healing. Yeah. And we know like data shows us that, you know, people enjoy being taken care of by people who are of the same background Mm -hmm. as them. So like racial concordance in the healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with that said, 
then brings up the questions of what happens when there is not racial concordance. Mm -hmm. So what skills do we need to develop or train or what lenses do we need to incorporate in our medical education, mm -hmm. in our you know, process of professionalism, whether mm -hmm. you're a doctor, nurse, whatever, mm -hmm. so that if you are taking care of someone who is of a different background than you, that you can honor their experiences, honor the differences that exist in a culture, and then also realize that there's a power differential that yeah. exists because of differences sometimes, and how we can enter a space with others and create environments where we close that gap between yeah. the differences that exist. So I love that. Yeah. So yeah, I could talk about this forever. Let's man. let's let's end with this because I always end with this, right? It's just like you know you've gone through this journey, and none of us are finished. We're continuing to grow and learn about ourselves. What's the one thing that continues to empower and inspire you to continue being your most authentic self? That's such a difficult question. I think it's the continued injustices that exist. I think it's that some things have changed, but a lot of things haven't changed since I was a little boy. And so I think that there is a collective fight that I feel like I'm a part of and it just so happens to be that my role is as a doctor but mm -hmm. I feel a large sense of community more than ever and a call to to fight alongside commu community to to create justice to bring to bridge the the gaps that exist in in our world the same gaps that I felt when I was a little boy so there is continued a lot of work that needs to be done. And I think we're seeing plenty of examples of this yeah. recently. So we all got to work together and that, that's what inspires me to keep going. Mi gente, that wraps up another episode of the Can Do It As podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please do us a favor wherever you are listening, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, even for those on YouTube, there should be an option to like, share, comment, or leave a rating and review. Your engagement is just going to help us in the algorithms to ensure that as many people as possible are able to listen to these experiences, because let's be real. That's the only way that we're going to redefine professionalism. Thank you and see you next time.